and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God. And do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. Let's ask God's blessing. Oh Lord, you have spoken long ago, and we ask that you would speak today. You have spoken already through the reading of your word. May you now speak in its preaching. Oh God, give us ears to hear. Give us faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Being brutally honest, a little scared of this sermon. And I'm scared because you're snobs. I'm so glad I got the response I was really hoping for. I was really hoping this wasn't the one where I get to the car and Nikki calls and is like, oh, I can't believe you did that. Now, you're snobs and I'm snobs, and that's what makes passages like this difficult. In fact, actually, it's a special type of snob. It's a term called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is simply this. It's the type of snobbery that takes one time in history and either makes it the best or makes it the worst makes it the best or makes it the worst. It it goes a little bit like this right now. Well, obviously, they were idiots back then, and we're the smartest people ever. Which is always amusing to me, because we're the people that invented social media. And I think that would actually prove we're on the wrong end of the spectrum. (laughs) 
It makes it hard for passages like this, though, because we read passages like this, and it's hard for us to kind of emotionally connect because we read this and we're like, my goodness, these people were morons. I mean, we remember the book of Exodus. We know that God brought them out of slavery, and not that any slavery is ever good slavery. This is particularly bad slavery. Egypt's killing their children, working them to death, trying to control the population by making married couples so exhausted they can't have children. I can't imagine just the level of bitterness that would build up in a man to watch the government make his wife work so hard that she constantly miscarried. Can you imagine the level of hatred that would stew in your soul? It's hard for us because we look at this book and we have all of the amazing stories. The plagues. Gnats. Frogs. Boils. I'm out. I've said that from the very beginning. Once boils are there, I'm done. The darkness that's inky and sticky and tangible, eventually the death of the firstborn. It's amazing. And we have the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, and we think, my goodness, that's a shocking thing, this gigantic tornado fire that leads them through the desert. And we have the Red Sea in the previous chapter where God opens the ocean so they can walk through. And again, remembering it's not just some little kind of, you know, pity the little, little creek that's being spread. It's this gigantic portion of the sea. It takes all night for it to open up. Chapter 15, so far, it's already been a song, that VBS song that gets stuck in your head, right? The, uh, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider fell into the sea. Kapump splash. And we have a tough time because we get to verse 22, and we think, man, these people have seen everything. And I can't relate. Because they failed under the most brilliant of circumstances, and I am brilliant in the most terrible of circumstances, and I can't relate. And again, my friends, you and I both were snobs. Chronological snobbery to say that I am the best, my time is the best, I'm the smartest, I'm the most handsome, I'm the funniest, doggone it, people like me, and they were a mess. been pastoring long enough now to have more than one conversation about the Israelites coming out of Egypt and we hear this kind of reoccurring refrain of oh well they grumbled but we don't do that (laughs) or you hear if maybe someone a little bit more honest to say well certainly I grumble but I hadn't seen things like they saw I mean, the way that God worked was right there in front of them. How could they still grumble? I mean, God literally just opened the ocean for them to walk through. How could they worry about a little bit of water? And the reality of the matter is, I worry about this sermon because I worry about all of our collective snobbery. I worry about our hearts that we're maybe not entirely honest with our own insides. 
Maybe we're not quite, you know, David says, my sin is always before me. Maybe that's not quite as true for us today. Maybe it's that their sin is always before us, but my sin lurks in the back of my mind, tucked away and hidden, obscured by my habits, obscured by my culture, and sometimes even willfully obscured by what I think is good reasoning, also known as rationalization. Because you see, this passage is, is not just the story of ancient Israel failing. This is the story of how we have failed, oh, dozens and dozens of times over. If you actually look, not as maybe one-to-one experience. I mean, I've never been trapped in the desert for three days without water and then found salt water to drink, but the principles behind it. 15 verses uh, 18, 21 there end with this great song of victory. Egypt has been destroyed as the Red Sea is closed over them. They've drowned. You have, uh, they're the bodies washing up on the shore. I love that. They're singing praise songs to God as the dead bodies wash up floating uh, on the waves. Miriam leads the women in this great kind of party, this zealous excitement. But between verses 21 and 22, they get, I think, probably a little bit sedentary. The grammar of 22 hints that they're maybe not quite so easy to get moving now. I mean, remember, they were really eager to get moving earlier. They got Pharaoh behind them. They got pillar of fire like it's time to get going like jack i don't want to stay here anymore that's where they enslaved us like i'm ready to get going i'm ready to move but now maybe egypt's not quite the threat they were about an hour and a half ago and maybe now we don't want to move so much and moses has to force them he makes them set out from the red sea kind of has to poke the people uh with you know a stick to get them to go and again you think about it's common sense this is a massive group of people Think about how many young moms are like, Moses, you literally just made us run for our lives into the desert. Can we at least take 48 hours to kind of get our legs underneath us? Nope. Time to go. He leads them into the wilderness of sure. This is, uh, they've kind of fled south into uh, further into Egypt. They've crossed east through the Red Sea into the Sinai Peninsula. And instead of going north, that's back where Egypt is, he takes them further south. In fact, it's noted here of how they go into the wilderness of Shur, that's south of where the Egyptian armaments are. It's further south than even where their uh, most kind of far south uh, outposts are. This is into unclaimed-ish territory. He's taken them likely down a road that the merchants used to trade with the people who lived what we would call the boonies, which is where they're headed. And they travel three days and they find no water. That is problematic. It's problematic for me, but it would be problematic to think about you take your entire household with you. I mean, you have animals, beasts of burden. You have children. You have aging saints that that need greater care. I mean, think about how many they were carrying on pallets as they had to go because they weren't even able to walk at all. Three days is a long time. And you get the idea that at some point along the way, they've exhausted their water supply. They knew well enough to pack the water skins, but uh, you just run out after a time. And they come 
to water. Ooh, yay, it's exciting. It's water, except it's not good water. It's bitter. That probably means it's salt water. That means it maybe it's not like ocean water per se, but it has some sort of minerals in it, some sort of salts that are coming out of the rocks that make it foul to taste. And usually with water, if it's foul to taste, it's poisonous. They either don't want to drink it because it tastes too bad or they can't drink it because they're afraid it's going to kill them. And it's because of that, the place is named Mara. I will always remember that word Mara because of the youth group that I grew up in. Yeah, you know it. You <laughs> so the youth group I grew up in, whenever we played youth group games, the losers were always taunted with Mara. It was always said, Mara, and used as a kind of needle to dig to just kind of highlight the bitterness that was already creeping in your heart. Very effective for pointing out when I was getting cantankerous about losing. The people began to grumble. And again, we, with our chronological snobbery in our minds today, we say, how on earth could you grumble? How could you do it? You fools, what have you seen God do? How can you grumble? But the problem is actually not grumbling. That's the second stage of it. The first stage of it is the stage that we didn't even notice happened. The first stage of grumbling is not a mouth problem. It's an eye problem. It's an eye problem because what they've done is they've begun to evaluate a problem before them. And that is a holy thing to do. As Christians, we should never live with our head in the sand hiding from the difficulties around us. Oh, please never do that. That's like the fastest way ever to end up in pastoral counseling. And I ignore all of your problems. <laughs> the problem, though, is not that they're uh, diagnosing their problem uh, incorrectly. It's not that they're ignoring it. It's not they've come to understand correctly that they don't have water. And that's an issue. You're about to watch a nation of a million people die in the desert of dehydration. This is not a good situation. The problem, however, is not that they grumble. It's that they evaluate the problem with their eyes and not their heart. You see, what they do is they take a problem that is in front of them and they view it as insurmountable. Because they're not viewing it through the eyes of faith. I mean, it's ironic. I love how Moses tells the story. We're like four verses removed from the greatest victory in human history and the praise songs that follow it. They have like spontaneous church that breaks out. I mean, how excited do you have to be about God's work to have spontaneous church break out? And yet just a few short verses later... They're viewing their circumstances. They're viewing their situation solely through their eyes, their senses, through their human, feeble, and frail framework. And oh no, we wanted to make fun of the Israelites. We wanted to say, well, they're bad people. We could never do anything like that. And oh no, this is much more Our issue, isn't it? 
We look at the world around us. We look at the circumstances that are in front of us. We look at the difficulties we have, that problem we have with our coworker, that problem we have with that family member, that illness that has come upon us, that thing that's just driving us crazy. Whatever problem it is, and because we have that lingering corruption, the remnants of that sin nature that still kind of perniciously gnaw at us. Our faith has a moment of weakness. And rather than evaluating that difficulty through the lens of God's sovereignty, through the lens of His perfection, through the lens of His kindness, through the lens of His goodness, through the lens of His Word, where He has promised to do all things for our good and for His glory, we have a moment of weakness and we panic. You know, they teach like high-end lifeguards how to rescue people. And it's really interesting if you ever kind of pay attention to high-end lifeguards, how they rescue. They never kind of swim out there and offer you the float and kind of help you back the high-end, like way out in the ocean or Australia or whatever. They swim out, they dunk you, they get you in a headlock, and they drag you in backwards on your back where you can't do anything. Because they know even the finest of swimmers, even the soundest-minded people sometimes hit a moment of panic and they lose their minds. And most often when out in the middle of the Australian Ocean and that happens, you both drown. So what they do is you get them in a headlock and you drag them back on their back so they can't do anything. Unfortunately, we're not those high-end lifeguards. We're certainly more likely to be the people panicking in the water, and this certainly is our situation, our tendency, even with our faith. Think about just your own life in the last handful of months. Do just an honest inventory, just right now as I'm talking. The last time that you had that circumstance or situation put in front of you, and rather than go, look, I know God's working for good, you had that moment of panic. Ah! And it's interesting because the panic is what produces the complaining. We like to jump straight to the grumbling. That's not the case. It's the byproduct. That's the symptom. It's not the problem. They come tomorrow. They find they could not drink the water because it was bitter. Therefore, it's named water. And then they panic. Oh, no. Ah! So they start grumbling against Moses. They start grumbling ultimately against God. What shall we drink? I'm thankful my memory is not good enough to know the number of times that I have done this. It would be a magnificently large number. I'm thankful that the Lord's memory is so intentionally forgetful that he himself has put away how many times I have done this. To evaluate my circumstances through my own limited perspective, through my own limited ability, through my own limited understanding. Not through the eyes of faith. And then to set about (laughs) grumbling and complaining as a consequence. You think, oh, maybe I don't do this. 
Maybe somehow you're still in disillusionment that this is not talking about you. I would just simply say, just remember the last time you had a good case of the flu or a good case of stomach, like food poisoning. How long did it take you before you lost the will to live? Before you're like, sweet Jesus, just take me now. I had a good run. I know I've only had the flu for like 30 hours, but I'm done. I'm out. And then think about how long that good attitude lasted and then how quickly it turned to much worse and much darker things. Why is this happening to me? I don't even feel good enough to watch TV. Ah, All right. (laughs) I would say probably the greatest struggle with this is that ultimately what they're doing is they're evaluating their problem as if God does not exist except to get them. They're evaluating their problems as if the Lord himself is not on their side, as if he's some petty or evil or vindictive or hateful God that's simply seeking to destroy them. And this is actually in some ways where chronological snobbery works the other way. Because to be fair, they actually don't know that much about this God. I mean, they've been following him in the desert for a matter of days at this point. They've been in Egypt for four centuries prior to that. And on top of that, there's an amazing thing. The only proof they have that God loves them and is caring for them are the specific miraculous deeds that they've had just, just days before. We do this and we have Jesus as proof. How do I know that God's not out to get me? He got his son in my place. If that's not good enough proof, I don't know what is. And yet, and yet, we follow down that same path, don't we? Evaluating our problems through human understanding only, forgetting the promises of God, and the product is grumbling. So then how do we go about applying this? Well, one is think about this as challenges arise. I've said it for the life of this church. One of the great struggles, the great issues, the great challenges that we're going to have are those three portraits on that back wall. I mean, it's common knowledge. It's well documented within church. The fastest way to get rid of your pastor is to build a building. Either you want to get rid of him or he wants to get rid of you is the fastest way to happen. And it's because passages like this. Where rather than all of us collectively together keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, keeping our minds anchored in his promises, we slowly and quietly slide into our own preferences. And grumbling follows. And this is not just you, this is me. I think it's intriguing what God gives them as the solution, the antidote here. You can tell this is early on in their uh, trip out of Egypt. As they continue to complain, his um, discipline is going to get a little bit sterner as they go. Later, this is going to be a fatal mistake. 
But right here at the very beginning, he gives them the antidote. He gives them the solution. What's the solution to this sort of thinking? He gives them two reminders right there in front of them. He gives them a reminder of his power, and he gives them the reminder of his promise. First, he gives them the reminder of the power, and I love this one. What are we going to drink? And they're whining, they're complaining, and the Lord looks at Moses and is like, go get, the, go get the wood, get the log, and just chuck it in the water. In case you haven't figured this out, that doesn't actually fix water. <laughs> doesn't work that way. Not what makes it safe to drink. He chucks the log in the water, and suddenly the water is not magically, but it is miraculously uh, uh, healed, so they are able to then drink it. It's funny, it's like they're momentarily, it's like they have momentary amnesia, where they just suddenly, quickly, instantaneously forget all of the works of God's power that have just happened. And he's like, okay, you want the solution to this. Can I just write in front of you, just for a moment, just remind you of my power? And again, this is so important for us. Again, this chronological snobbery working backwards where uh, we want to think about God's power. We say, well, look, they had these miracles worked in front of you, right there in front of them. Hebrews 1 tells us that while God did all of these things in mighty ways in the past, it is now done in the fullness of his son, Christ Jesus. Yeah, they had to have a log chucked in the water to help them understand. We have Christ. We have his spirit. Though if you caught it in David's prayer, just thanking God for the ways that he has miraculously answered our prayer requests. Such a simple thing, isn't it? To pray and God answers, provides help, provides healing, provides his power to change things. I'm going to go ahead and be up front with you. If you find yourself in this situation where you're thinking through your own eyes and your own senses, if you're finding yourself leaning into that grumbling where maybe I want to get a little cantankerous toward God, you need a fresh reminder of his power. There is no clearer one. It's clear in the New Testament, this is actually said, all these things happen for us, for our understanding. They happen as examples for us so that we may see God's power in them. Second, I would say prayer. Again, be reminded, God answers prayers and he answers them miraculously. Think about how many miraculous answers we've had in this church in the last just handful of years. Ways that God has healed hurts that we never thought would ever be healed. Thirdly, have conversations with the saints. If you've grown discouraged about the lack of God's power in your life, please talk to others in this room. Because while you may be struggling with that, they might not be. They might be seeing a side of his working and his power and his story that you don't yet know right now. And your weariness can be strengthened, augmented, picked up and helped and healed along through the people of God, shoring up and strengthening each other. He displays his power for his saints. I I love how it immediately follows those. Maybe, (laughs) maybe, maybe if you're a really bad place, and this happens, we get there. I've been there. 
where that immediate display of power is something along these lines. This is how badly the human mind can misinterpret it. Well, sure, he's powerful, but he's not powerful for me. Sure, he does miracles, but he doesn't do miracles for me. Sure, he provides help, but he never provides help for me. Please never say that, but I know we do. I love how the Lord follows up his water miracle with an explanation, an exegesis, a promise. The Lord made for them a statute and a rule. He he made law for them. His law, remember, the primary purpose of his law is to explain who he is. That's the primary purpose of the law, is to explain who he is. It then shows you that you need a Savior or it shows you how to live. But primary purpose is to show who he is. And what does this law say? Well, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. That is an amazing statement. Look, people of God, if you keep covenant with me, God says, I will never do to you what I did to the Egyptians. And again, that, that's pretty real for them. I mean, remember, the boils. Yeah, I'm out on boils. But again, if we're kind of honest, <laughs> if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, if we're going to be honest, we haven't kept covenant. In fact, if I'm actually going to be honest, there's a lot of times where I don't listen to his voice at all. In fact, there have been seasons of my life where I have put my fingers in my ears and tried to go, na, 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 and not hear his voice. It doesn't work, but I've tried. (coughs) You see, the the cool part is this promise is given to the saints as a reminder. Look, I, I have my power and it's applied for my people, but this is a promise that is ultimately best understood in Christ. Remember, we did this just in Sunday school. You should be in Sunday school if you're not. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my glorious dress. My clothing, my attire is not my keeping of the covenant because I'm a mess. You are too. But God's promise, look, if Christ has done this on your behalf, if he has listened to the voice of the Lord God, did he do that? In fact, actually, he explained exactly how he did that. <laughs> did he do that which is right in the Father's eyes? Did he give ear to his commandments? Did Christ keep his statutes perfectly? And not only did he do those things perfectly, but he gave that record to me. So that when the Father looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees perfectly listening to the voice of the Lord. He sees perfectly keeping his commandments. He sees perfectly keeping all of his statutes. And the result is if you are a child of God, never will God turn his wrath upon you. Never will he do to you that which he did to his enemies, the Egyptians. No wrath, no hatred, no enemy. Instead, you actually get the explanation there at the end of verse 25. There, he tested them. 
He's working on them. He's refining them. He's increasing their faith. He would be sanctifying them. And of course, Israel fails. The reason why they fail, we find out in Hebrews, is because most of these people probably aren't Christians in any way. But Christ kept it and shared his righteousness with the people of God. And I love how the Lord acknowledges what immediately happens after this. They, they're at Mara for a bit. The water's changed. God explains to them, I am your healer that will heal your heart. I am the one who will heal the brokenness inside. Those secret hurts that no one else knows, I am the God that repairs those. And then he takes them from that place to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. And we read that as, you know, Westerners that don't have issues with, uh, you turn on your tap, most of the time water comes out. Um, but what the significance is here is he takes them just from like a, a place of water. He takes them to a really nice place with a ton of water. How much water has to be there for 70 trees to grow well? He takes them not just from one spot with one little spring that maybe was bad but then was made. He takes them into a place of rest, a place of provision, a place of blessing. And I love how it displays how God works with his people, how he intentionally puts, it, puts us in these difficult situations at times so that our faith will be refined. And in the midst of that, he reminds us, by the way, I don't hate you. I can't hate you. My hatred was finished on the cross. Instead, I'm refining you and I'm preparing you for the life to come. And if you got worried or concerned, here are blessings to remind you. (laughs) It's intriguing how well he teaches his people, how tender he is with us. Again, I worried coming to this passage. I worried because we'd want to say, well, that was them and this is us and we're not the same. Hopefully, though, Hopefully, if you paid attention, we can see, no, these are struggles that we have. And appropriate for us that we as God's people this day, His day, given to us to confess our sins. Confess the ways that we have fallen short. And to rejoice that we have Christ. So there is no more hatred. And be excited that even in difficulty... We are being prepared for the life to come. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he satisfied your wrath. That the diseases and difficulties that you poured out on Egypt will never be poured out on us. Oh Lord, please forgive us. It makes us sad to think about how much we sin against your provision, sin against your power, sin against your promise. We sin against your person all of the time. Please forgive us. Lord, we ask that your spirit would even use this passage to equip us for the next difficulty that we have. That we wouldn't sin quite so rapidly. And Lord, we long for the life to come where we will not sin at all. 
And we thank you for Jesus who accomplishes that. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.